With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is World Sage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. Before I introduce my guest, I want to invite everybody to go to my site, brucetatoris.com, find the tab called Appearances 2, Appearances Number 2. I recently posted a five-minute video that I wrote and created this past week commemorating the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And I just want to read the first few sentences of it, not the whole thing. JFK will not go away. 2023 version. 60 years ago, on November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was killed in Dallas, Texas. Studying the truth about what happened reveals his greatness, which inspires us to attain the same the same way by living the idea, give me liberty or give me death. That attitude is the only thing that has ever created liberty. The forces that killed Kennedy are sickening and impoverishing us. We have let them create enemies all over the world through decades of aggression. They plan to make their surveillance and control of our lives complete. Again, go to brewstatoris.com, click on appearances number two, and find my new video, JFK Will Not Go Away 2023 version. With me this hour is Donald Jeffries, best-selling author, talk show host, and critic of politics, business, and culture. His books include Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics, Masking the Truth, How COVID-19 Destroyed Civil Liberties and Shut Down the World, and his brand new Pipe the Bimbo in Red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. Written with JFK researcher William Madsen Law. Don can be followed at donaldjeffries.substack. Jeffries is spelled J E double F as in Frank R I E S. And also at Twitter or x.com slash Don Jeffries. Thank you very much for joining me again, Don. How are you today? Oh, it's always a pleasure, Bruce. I assure you, mine as well. <laughs> Would you? We're, I, I want to start by asking you to describe briefly, or whatever, your background as a truth hunter and writer, and tell me all about that. Let's discuss that for a little while, and then I really want to roll up our sleeves and get into your brand new book, Pipe the Bimbo in Red. So to remind you, because it's already been many minutes ago, your background as a, as a truth hunter and as a writer. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a child. I, I wrote poems and short stories. Uh, and when I was a teenager, I started writing songs. I picked up the guitar and just I, mainly to write even more than do anything. So I thought that's what I wanted to be, the next Bob Dylan or something. And uh, and then somewhere about age 17 or so, I discovered uh, that there were books out there about the Kennedy assassination. And uh, I loved Kennedy. I always said my family loved Kennedy. They were Catholics. And his assassination was one of the, I was seven years old, and it was one of the uh, pivotal incidents of my life that were outside the family. 
remember it indelibly. And, uh, you know, in fact, my memories probably start for good at that from that day on because, uh, you know, nonstop television coverage, seeing my parents cry and uh, having the family. I mean, they were speculating right there. My father, you know, nobody ever thought Oswald did it in our house, uh, especially when he was shot. You know, we were coming home from mass and we heard it on the radio that he was shot. And uh, <clears throat> from that point, I mean, I as a seven year old, as much as I could in my mind, I thought, well, Ruby shot him to shut him up, you know, to stop him from talking. So I didn't know that, you know, this would become you know, my my wheelhouse issue later. But then again, when I was about 17 or so, uh, heard about, I started reading a few of the books, including Russia Judgment by Mark Lane. Mark Lane was an early hero of mine. and I loved his civil libertarian philosophy. I said, that's me. That's what I want to do. You know, I want to defend the right of everybody, even if I don't agree with what they say at all, like Patrick Henry, you know. And, uh, so I, I joined the Citizens Committee of Inquiry as a volunteer worker, and uh, you know we lobbied Congress to try to open it up, and they did as the House Select Committee on Assassinations. That was obviously very disillusioning and disappointing for all of us. But hang on, uh, it was a hang heavy, on, hey, tell me, describe what that Citizens Committee. What's it called again? And who set it up? And where did it exist? How long did it exist? And who was involved with it? Well, Mark Mark Lane set it up. It was his group, Citizens Committee of Inquiry. And he had chapters all across the country. And I think he set it up in the mid 60s. I don't know. And I came into it, it was like 1975, something like that. And uh, it was, uh, they, they had a chapter. You know, I started the chapter in Fall Church, Virginia. You know, I was the, the chairman of my chapter in Fall Church, Virginia with another teenager. And, uh, you know, hardly any members, but um, I did get to go to the archives. I had my little archives researcher card and I got to hold the magic bullet in my hand and the rifle and they, they brought the clothes out, JFK's clothing out for me to look at. And then I, uh, it was very heady stuff for a 17, 18 year old. I, oh my God, I had a private room where they uh, showed me a frame by frame uh, Zapruder film, you know, and I could say stop, you know, freeze and then just look at each frame as much as I wanted. So it was, it was, I felt pretty cool. You know, and I got a committee, a committee in, of citizens to investigate only the president's assassination at that time. Yeah, well, they were, I, you know, it's, it was it was directed towards the JFK assassination. But Mark Lane certainly had an interest as well in RFK, excuse me, in MLK. And as you know, uh, there were two separate bills in Congress. There was one from uh, Downing, I think, Thomas Downing of Virginia. Uh, that wanted to just open the JFK assassination. I think it was Henry Gonzalez who wanted to reopen all three assassinations and ended up on a compromise and they looked into JFK and MLK. You know, we were we were very all disappointed at it because they basically supported all the, the untenable findings, including the single bullet theory. And then at the last minute, they introduced this acoustics evidence, which I always thought was pretty dubious. And uh, they just came up with the, you know, the conclusion that he was a assassinated as a probable result of a conspiracy. So uh, that left, you know, kind of a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And But I, I never left the JFK assassination. It was only, I kept reading, you know, books about it. And then uh, I was a subscriber, Penn Jones, Continuing Inquiry. He published my first article ever when I was very young. And the uh, front page of the Continuing Inquiry, a big time. <laughs> but that was the Bible for JFK assassination researchers. So, um, and, but question, it, quick, quick, quick question for you. You you said the acoustic evidence that the House committee reviewed was dubious. Was that what you meant? Yeah, I think it was. I, I don't think it was strong evidence. I think it's kind of like uh, badge man press, you know. I think it's, it's hard to prove. It's an indistinct photo. And this is, you know, 
It's interesting that there was an open mic, supposedly on Officer McLean's uh, microphone, the motorcycle cop. What it recorded, I don't know. In light of the fact that they had supported all of these horrible, you know, impossible conclusions of the warrant report, right? All the backyard photos. They said the single bullet theory was fine. Oswald could have done it, and all that stuff. Right. Really, the, the acoustic evidence was weak because what they did is what they said. They they analyzed it. And they said the shot from the grassy knoll that came from that area missed, which again contradicts all the evidence. We know back into the left and all that. So. Um, the reason the, re- was- the reason I wanted to ask you about that is just last week, watching a presenter over Zoom at the JFK conference in Dallas that I watched, or it may have been another do- recent documentary, but I think this is where I just heard last week that the audio tape that they analyzed had or revealed three or four shots and to your point of how they watered it down you accurately just said yeah but what they ultimately finally said about it is one shot from the grassy knoll area and it and it missed everything which is a joke yeah so um you know so i'm just intrigued as to the status of that i'm not going to lose sleep over it but oh, I thought I would mention that to you because I know you're all ears for every you know analysis of sure, of these kind sure. of things. So that's what I just overheard, and then um, yeah, you went on to uh, write and contribute to Penn Jones publication. Pick up your your uh, biography there. We're speeding right along. This is good. Yeah. Well, you know, I uh, the JFK assassination still remained my uh, excuse me my wheelhouse issue. You know, I read best evidence. I was a little. Although David Lipton was had some good points, but then later I got to communicate with him. And he was, if anybody who's communicated with him knows it was pretty difficult to do. So, uh, you know, he, he, and when you meet these, meet them, but when you start talking to them and you realize, well, okay, like Josiah Thompson was another one. Very difficult for me. I read six seconds. Wasn't impressed later. Um, six seconds in again. Dallas. Yeah. Exactly. And I was one of, you know, like I, I got to meet Weisberg as well, Harold Weisberg, who was a hero of mine. And I got to have dinner at his home uh, when I was a young man. Uh, you know, very, he was as cantankerous as the original grumpy old man. I mean, he was a grumpy old man. And he uh, <clears throat> he didn't want to talk about the assassination much. He wanted, he, he sat me down and kept playing these big band music, kind of dancing around to it. <laughs> so, but I love the guy. So, I, I was just happy to be there, but uh, he hated all the other critics, as you know, especially Mark Lane. I didn't dare tell him that I had been associated with Mark Lane. I knew how much wow. I hated him. Uh, well, I didn't do that. But, and, and, that's and hard, that's book, heartbreaking because Mark Lane is so seminal, you know, to, to people who've studied yeah, the assassination. It it's incredible. A lot of jealousy. And you, what you see today in the, in the uh, research community, and there's not much research being done, it, what was going on back then? There were a lot of petty jealousies, a lot of divisions. You know, Jim Garrison, who will talk about he uh divided the community up quite a bit and you know at weisberg when i talk about him a lot in pipes of bimbo and red where uh oswald in new orleans was the he seminal work on on this area and weisberg did a lot of great stuff and uh but for whatever reason he turned on garrett's later and became a really bitter enemy to the extent that he leaked an advanced script of all our tongues jfk to, to, to george larder jr who was a mockingbird media asset for washington post for decades Don, could you repeat? Could you repeat that point a little <clears throat> slow? I didn't follow you. Sorry. Yeah, no. We- Weisberg, for whatever reason, 
he he went from being um, Garrison's really top research. Garrison relied a lot on the on the research that went into uh, Weisberg's book Oswald New Orleans, which is in book. And I and I reread it when you know writing this book. And uh, but at some point he turned against Garrison. And even though he had provided much of the research for him, and so he, uh, and I have all that. We have all that in the okay. book, and 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 eventually he went to the point where he leaked an advanced copy of Oliver Stone's JFK's George Lardner of the Washington Post, who was a mockingbird media asset who lied about the Kennedy assassination for decades. He covered it for the Washington Post invariably but to launch that- to launch the uproar and the pushback against Stone's <laughs> script and movie. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the, uh, and, and wow. I think it was, I think Weisberg, which is, I think he was jealous. I think he was jealous that Stone picked Garrison as his protagonist. I think he thought he should have been him. To be honest, wow. I, that's all, that's the only thing I can speculate, but, um, okay. for whatever reason, but it, in between there, when, uh, in the period of the eighties, I started, uh, I started exploring other, uh, I accidentally, when I was, uh, before the internet, you know, you had, uh, and, uh, different book outlets and places that you could mail away for subversive literature, you know, uh, assassination books and far right and far left wing books. So uh, I ordered a book called None Dare Call a Conspiracy. And I was really I, I, I thought it was a JFK assassination. And of course, it was something entirely different written by Gary Allen, far right wing book, uh, hmm. kind of uh, John Birch Society tinged, you know, and uh, I, first, I ever heard of the Council of Foreign Relations and all this other stuff. So that kind of opened up my mind a little bit. Anyway, they talk, so I started reading some right-wing stuff, too. And I started, wow, there's, this is really complex. So, um, And, of course, during Reagan's uh, years, uh, you know, I, I began to understand these guys don't ever do anything they say. He didn't cut the size of government at all. Only He only cut taxes for the very wealthy. Everyone else's taxes went up. And uh, when the 90s came, first Oliver Stone's film in 1991, that reinvigorated my interest in the JFK assassination. I, you know, I said, uh, Oprah Winfrey is talking about this, you know, and uh, so that was pretty cool. And then Bill Clinton, as I described it in history, the 90s with Bill Clinton was Conspiracy Central. It was one thing after another. So that that really opened me up outside of the JFK assassination to uh, Ruby Ridge and Waco and Oklahoma City and Vince Foster. Mm. Mm. All the Clinton body count, and then eventually culminating with the JFK, what I think was the JFK Jr. assassination. And I, you know, in Hidden History, I was the first one really to, to explore that in depth. I think he was assassinated. And so the 90s was just a, kind of uh, maybe transforming into what I am today, I guess. Can't figure out what I am. I'm far right wing on some issues, far left wing others. Uh, you know, I remain a Huey Long disciple. That's my hero. So I'm a, I'm a Western distributionist, but I also have been mm. accused of being a white nationalist. I don't like the anti-white uh, <clears throat> um, agenda. So I'm all, I, 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 it's consistent to me, but um, <clears throat> throughout all this, the JFK assassination has remained my wheelhouse issue. It's one I go back to. So it was kind of inevitable that uh, <clears throat> me, mm. I would write a book about this in conjunction with William Lodge. You mentioned William, one of the, probably the most underrated researcher, certainly in the medical evidence out there. He doesn't receive his due. I think he's a go-to guy, and, and he's uh, written many books himself, like uh, In the Eye of History. Uh, he wrote a book with Jim Jenkins, and he's uh, he's met and interviewed all these people. Yeah. So yeah. he found uh, great out that bo- I, Great body of work, At the Cold Shoulder of History. His work's yeah. been cited in, I think, 30 different books. He's a friend also, also published by... Trine Day, for whom I do yes, marketing, yes. I always I always do full disclosure about that. 
Now his is seminal work about what happened at the autopsy, what happened that that night, and all the all the shenanigans there. And when I saw that pipe, the bimbo in red was coming out with both, <laughs> you know, your names on it. I really, I really did some nice backflips. Don, I'm going to reintroduce you, Donald Jeffries, best-selling author, talk show host, and critic of politics, business, and culture. And after a little break, we're going to talk about his brand new book, Pipe the Bimbo in Red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. And here now is important information from TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Jeremy Nell and Germ Warfare. I feel like they've hijacked some words that have meaning, sustainable and development, because now if I use the word sustainable, I feel like I'm swearing. When you go onto the United Nations website, so if you go and look at their, their documentation, for example, around Agenda, Agenda 2030, what you get is the kind of glossy brochure image of sustainable development. And really, when you look through that public-facing brochure, I think it's probably probably a reasonable description of it, of sustainable development, that's all you get. You, you just get the sound bites and you just get the claims about how wonderful it is going to be. The UN states that the agenda is an agenda for transformation of the world. Most, perhaps acutely, its economy, its industrial processes, and perhaps something that is often overlooked, us, our societies, and us as individuals. We are to be transformed as well. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The Lights is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk It sounds pretty good. It's it like, sounds real, it's dude. Not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And this is World Stage. I am Bruce Tatars, talking to best-selling author and friend of mine, Donald Jeffries. Okay, brand new book, Pipe the Bimbo in Red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. Don... Who came up with what idea between you and William Matson Law co-author? How how long did it take to frame out exactly what you wanted to put in the book? And then walk me through uh, what's in it, please. Well, this book was really William's idea because uh, I and it's based it's centered around my friendship, my longtime friendship with Dean Andrews III. He was the son of Dean Andrews Jr., the uh, excuse me, the colorful beatnik lawyer played by John Candy and Oliver Stone's JFK. And that's where the title came from, which also can be credited to William. I've got some complaints about it, so it's all William's fault. Uh, pipe the bimbo in red, which is a line that uh, John Candy says as, you know, as a practical woman walks by. Pipe the bimbo in red. It's a, I think it epitomizes his beatnik lingo, which made him such a colorful character. And he is a colorful character. He's an interesting character. His son is pretty interesting, too. And for... One of those coincidences in life, Dean Andrews III came into my brother, my late brother's orbit, uh, you know, 20-some years ago, and they just hit it off. He moved from New Orleans to Northern Virginia, where I am, and, and they became best friends. 
So, uh, you know, I, I was fascinated by this. And I said, play the same Dean Andrews. And so he came out of the house and he, uh, first time, and he brought his New Orleans uh, jazz scrapbook that his father had. His father was pre- was the head of the New Orleans Jazz Festival every year. And uh, he became kind of a fixture. You know, he, he was at holiday gatherings. He didn't have any other family in the area. So he was over our house a lot for just get togethers and uh, a nice picture in the book of him sitting between my brother and me and uh, my dining room. Were you table. living so, in New Orleans? Was this in New Orleans when this, this no, no, this is it. No, this is he moved from New Orleans to Northern Virginia where we are. I missed and, it if uh, you said that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, he was here and he's still here. And I just saw him last week and uh, I go over and see him every once in a while. And uh, he, it's um. It's so it's it's his story as well because I think as as we show in there when he goes he went on the record with William we have a long interview transcribed with him in there and he talks about what he witnessed and uh, what his father really had going on behind the scenes and you know he obviously you know we demonstrate very clearly that he was he was lying to uh, protect himself he was scared of being killed like everybody else had been and uh, he wanted to protect his family as well but it destroyed his family in the process and that's a little bit of that in there too where you see. Uh, like Dean, for instance, Dean, my friend Dean, unquestionably, if if this had not happened, if Dean Andrews uh, Jr. hadn't been drawn into Garrison's investigation, if he had never been called in the hospital, which you know that before this all begins, he was in the hospital on the at the time of the assassination, and Clay Bertrand called him up and asked him to represent Lee Harvey Oswald in the afternoon of the assassination, the evening of the assassination, and uh, that's where his involvement begins, because you know he. He, he, the rest of it was an effort to try to backtrack from the obvious reality that Clay Bertrand was an alias for Clay Shaw, who we go into detail here. That we go into Clay Shaw's background, which uh, he had connections going back to Operation Paperclip in World War II. I mean, this, this guy had Clay Shaw was connected to everyone. And um, it was obviously no, I, I still haven't been able to wrap my mind necessarily around why he was called in the hospital when he was. We'll also have some heretofore unknown. Uh, experiences in the hospital that Dean the third shed for the people can learn about that happened to his father in the hospital and um, whatever Dean was uh, junior was trapped in that his his life was never the same again he went from being a prominent lawyer to being kind of persona non grata and uh, his wife I had uh, the, his, the Dean the Dean Andrews in the 60s who was yes. called by the, Clay yeah. Shaw Bertram. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. His 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 life was never the same again because well again he was did, a prominent did, did, attorney. He okay. He was a prominent attorney, and what's the what's the narrative of why did Shaw slash Bertram call him? Did he know him already? Yeah. Well, that, and that's that's the question. Obviously, he must have. And, and I, as I've mentioned, you know, how, first of all, how did he necessarily know he was in the hospital? At the time, because it wasn't, it hadn't been in the newspapers or anything. So he must have known him pretty well to know he was in the hospital. Did so you find a reason? Him, no, I, I, I don't think. Okay. I mean, all, all we can, all we can guess is, is that. Again, you're, you're speculating because Clay Shaw, and this is what I talk about, and we talk about in this book is that what I call the ground level plot, New Orleans people, and I think all these people, first and foremost, Lee Harvey Oswald, were being manipulated. Oswald was being told, he, hey, infiltrate this trot. They're planning to kill the president. Report back to whoever, FBI, CIA, whoever. I think they all might have been told that. David, because they all had the same kind of connections. If Ruby was an FBI informant. Terry had CIA connections, except for Shaw. Shaw was 
he was the uh, the conduit, I think, between those players who were all being used against each other and the, whoever the big chats were that were following the chats in Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, the C, whoever was doing it, whoever his connection right. was with. So right. for whatever reason. You're, you're done. Was, you're, you're a really, really great writer. Do you want to tell me kind of beginning and in sequence the story as you unfolded in Pipe the Bimbo in Red, your new book? Without giving away everything, so that people will be intrigued to pick up a copy. Sure. Well, again, it's probably inevitable that I would write a JFK assassination book. And, you know, I, I touched on it a lot in Hidden History, but uh, we decided to go this way because William, you know, had this idea, and I thought, well, I have this connection to Dean. It's a personal thing, and Dean Andrews III has never spoken out. So this is all new information; it's never been heard before. And uh, I, we just told, we told. His father's story, his story against the backdrop, what was happening in New Orleans. And uh, New Orleans is where a lot of this stuff, and you can see in Oliver Stone's JFK, he he talked about 544 camps, you know, that had uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's Fair Play for Cuba Committee and Guy Bannister's, you know, the big anti-communist guy, former FBI guy. His office is right in the same building. So it's what was going on there with all the intelligence, you know, naval intelligence and see all the... It's, it's, the uh, characters point out, and Kevin Costner points out in Albert Sanchez, oh, well, there's naval intelligence, there's CIA, and he's right. That's the way he was right in the heart of the intelligence district. So New Orleans, and I believe personally, Bruce, uh, I disagree with a lot of the people. I think that I've always said that Cuba, the whole Cuban thing was a, was a smokescreen. And you see all these anti-Castro Cubans, and people, and, and but they were all at that New Orleans level. And they're all around Oswald and all these people. And I think that wasn't by accident. I think they were being manipulated too. And the idea was to create that as maybe an alternative. Either blame Castro or blame anti-Castro Cubans uh, if the, the lone assassin thing didn't fail. Because if if Cuba was a uh, mm -hmm. JFK not wanting to, to follow through on the Bay of Pigs and not wanting to mm -hmm. assassinate Castro was a, a motive for the assassination, what happened after the assassination? Nothing. Cuba died as an American political issue. There was mm -hmm. no, there was no more attempts to, to assassinate Castro ever again. Castro outlived them all. So Cuba mm -hmm. could not have. If if Cuba Cuba was a motivation at all to kill Kennedy, they had to have considered the assassination an utter failure, because you know nothing happened that. So it, that's why I think it could be Vietnam right. and other issues. See what happened afterwards was different. In the case do of you Cuba, go, do you do you flesh out those views? Those, that's like big picture analysis of all those moving parts. Is that in Pipe the Bimbo in Red? Yeah, it, 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 some of it is. Uh, uh, but uh, And I've talked about it before as well. But I think it's if you just look at these characters, Sergio Rocha Smith, Eladio Del Valle, who ended up with a hatchet in his head, you know, the day after David Ferry, one of many witnesses that were, you know, that were knocked off that Jim Garrison could have relied on. But uh, that's where all those Cubans were. You know, they weren't there weren't mm -hmm. people from the the uh, the, uh, the Pentagon, those places. Did, so um, I think did did the Dean Andrews in the '60s interact with a lot of these Cubans? Oh yeah, yeah. Dean Andrews, that was, and again, I think he was being manipulated as well because Lee Harvey hmm. Oswald was his client. He had come to get him. He, supposedly, the the story was that Lee Harvey Oswald wanted him to try to get his dishonorable discharge uh, removed. When did that? Okay, okay. Maybe, this tell, is in the yeah, summer of '63. Yeah. Most of this happened in the summer right. of '63. Again, it's right. right leading up to the assassination. 
And, right. Uh, so Dean Andrews back then had at one time represented or did some work Oswald. for Oswald. Oswald for him. hired him. Okay. Yes, yeah, and Oswald didn't pay him too. He made that very clear. You know, he still owed me twenty five dollars. You know, and and uh, so he wasn't paying him, and he also he would bring in what he called the gay caballeros. You know, so he again he was he was these these anti Castro Cubans, the Mexicanos. He called them all kinds of different things, but clearly. I think that was part of the setup. Again, they were trying to associate Oswald with all of these Cuban people, the anti-Castro people, and he was surrounded by these guys. And most of them had intelligence connections as well. And I think it was to try to not only set up a possible alternative uh, scenario explanation, but also to uh, to distract researchers. And we mm -hmm. go back to the very beginning. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I think it was probably anti-Castro Cubans and rogue cia agents when they right. came up with them you know anti-castro people and rogue cia agents can't be responsible for six years later us right. turning on any every television network and still hearing the exact same lies and also guys, uh, you probably i assume i'm going to ask in my reading of the assassination there seems to be a number of uh teams obviously other suspicious people were seen and or arrested around Dealey Plaza and the rest of the day. Who knows what those three so-called tramps were for? There's photographic evidence of the motorcade speeding to the hospital of maybe someone on a roof, maybe someone with a weapon yes, on a roof. Yeah. So the, the way you've described these Cubans around Oswald in New Orleans, it's easy to imagine that somehow he was going to kennedy was going to get killed in dallas most likely in elm street because it was obviously so perfect everything was just slowed down and everything was in place there for the crossfire that killed him but what one wonders like how many so-called patsies like oswald were in various positions in case oswald got away in case right. they were going to frame somebody else and he got away and they framed oswald as as sure. the backup because there's such swirling chaos. What was J.D. Tippett's uh, murder all about? Right. How was Who went into the theater and when? Oswald was apparently there way before the Tippett shooting. So you're well-versed in all those swirling chaoses, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's Not in this book, but I have a book coming out next year called The American Memory Hole. I talk a lot about the JFK assassination and a lot of other issues. But, and then I explore Thomas Arthur uh, Ballet. Was the designated patsy in the Chicago plot, which was pulled at the last minute. JFK was supposed to be uh, assassinated. I, I, it looks like at the Army Navy game, right around the Army Navy game, earlier in November 1963. Uh, and then you, you know, you also some people suspect Buell Wesley Frazier as being a backup patsy. Uh, now I've, I've, you know, become friends with Buell. Had him on my show a couple times. One of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. You know, epitome of a Southern gentleman. Uh, the way he was treated afterwards, and he was browbeaten late into the night. Uh, something tells me he, they can, and he had the same. He could have been painted the same way, perhaps you know, as a, yeah. as a loner or whatever. And he had, you know, the three names going for him. You know, they always, they always, he's, you know, he, I don't think he goes by Buell, Wesley Fraser naturally, but uh, that's the way he always referred to him, just like Lee Harvey Oswald. Nobody called him Lee Harvey Oswald. Right, right. That's what that's and what he, he referred to. And right, and he seems to have been. Some somewhat innocent to me, simply be by virtue of the fact, if I'm recalling correctly, the way he described 
the package that Oswald brought into work yes, that yes. morning mm -hmm. yeah. eliminates the rifle that he supposedly used. So if if Frazier was a yes. bad actor or part a scoundrel in the plot, he wouldn't have one thinks he wouldn't have right. uh uh exonerated oswald with that piece of uh no he testimony i yeah. had i had uh, uh real on my show um uh, oh a couple, a couple years ago now but he he was i think it's you know a lot of people said it's his best interview because i really he came out so strong for conspiracy you know this was a huge conspiracy he really hadn't done that before. he also went on the record and uh talked about how much uh how much lee harvey oswald loved children now, all the neighborhood children, including his niece and nephews, when, when he came over there on Fridays, they would all run to him and said, come on, play with us, Lee. I mean, paints a completely different picture of this yeah. oddball, you know, this weird yeah. guy. But uh, he's very adamant about it. You know, so he, if you listen to the interview, it's still out there in the archives. From him or your other research, what's your impression about what a front the business was of the school book depository business. So there were a couple other businesses in the building. Yeah. Yeah. But the company that Oswald worked for, I've seen indications that how much of that may have been a front. What, what have you seen or think about that? Well, I'll have a lot more on that in the, in, in the, uh, the American Memory Hall coming out next year. And I went into that thanks to, I have uh, researchers, Chris Graves and Peter Seacott, who helped me out a lot. And Peter found some great stuff on the, I forget his first name, but it's a guy named Bird, and he's distantly related to Admiral Bird, who owned the Texas School Book Depository Building. At the time of the assassination, he was on a safari in Africa, supposedly. But this guy has some very interesting connections. And he, you know, again, something I, I didn't know having studied this for decades, but he the sixth floor window, he basically removed the so-called sniper's nest from his building and put it in his home as a curiosity. For decades, he put it in his family room. And every guest that came in, he'd point to it and say, that's the sniper's nest. And then when he died, his, his, his son was repelled by it, and he got rid of it in the Sixth Floor Museum, came in and swooped it up. But at the very least, that's kind of a curiosity. And especially if you look at his uh, his connections. Uh, very, he was, I, he I, was I, friends with, uh, I think, Murkison, the oil guy. He was friends oh, yeah. with, or an, at least an acquaintance, but I think friends with LBJ. So it's a huge, that's a rabbit hole in the memory hole right there. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's what, you know, sometimes you, you you chase these connections and you see they're just, it's it's amazing. And in this book, uh, we talk about the connections of Shaw and Shaw had connections to everyone, including yeah. one, of, one of the other firsts in this. I was the first one to ever contact uh, the family of Ed Vogel, who was Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend in high school. Uh, I believe he was murdered at the Alvin Oxner Clinic and uh, Clay, and I talked to his family and I, I won't give you any spoilers, but they had some interesting things to say. And uh, the pictures of the sister in the book as well, too. They sent me pictures. And, uh, but Oxner was very good, uh, close friends with uh, Clay Shaw. Well, so these, these these guys were all, he was intertwined with all the powers. And they, a lot of them were connected to, uh, you know, even more mysterious deaths that we don't generally get talked about. We also, uh, William found the transcript. Uh, William was friends with Ann Bichler, who's another unheralded researcher who was um, worked for Jim Garrison, his office. And she spoke at one of the conferences many, many years ago. And William found the uh, the transcript. We transcribed it. And uh, she talks there about one of the things they were investigating were really underreported. I've never heard of anywhere else. Uh, instances of Oswald being impersonated in New Orleans that summer. 
Hang on, Don. I want to. We're going to pick up right after a little break with that. Donald Jeffries talking about his new book, Pipe the Bimbo in Red. Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. And here now is important information from TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. With Joe Biden behind in just about every presidential poll, the strategy of the left seems to be to go after Donald Trump even harder than they've been doing for the past eight years, if that's even possible. And on the media side, Joe Scarborough, whose brother-in-law works in the Biden administration, seems to be leading the charge. He will do, he will get away with, he will imprison, he will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Just look at his past. And as unhinged as that was, it's nothing compared to what New York Democrat Congressman Dan Golden said the other day. It is just uh, uh, unquestionable at this point that that man cannot see public office again. He is not only unfit, he is destructive to our democracy, uh, and he has to be uh, he has to be eliminated. Now, after receiving some well-deserved criticism, Goldman apologized, said he didn't mean to use that word, eliminated, et cetera, et cetera. This is all the left has left, so watch for more of the same. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Ballsberg. Catch my show Monday to Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT Radio Vision. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. To learn more, visit nature.org today. The conversation continues with Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Here on TNT Radio on World Stage, talking about the new book, Pipe the Bimbo in Red, by Donald Jeffries and William Madsen Law. Donald, who was that Who was that lady researcher you were just starting to tell me about the transcript of her presentation at a conference a few years ago? Yes, Ann Dishler. She's, she's no longer with us. As unfortunately, a lot of people aren't that uh, did some good work here. But uh, she talked, one of the things she talked about that they were working on before she left Garrison's office uh, were a series of impersonations of Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans. I hadn't heard of them. They're not the ones you typically hear of. Sylvia Odio, Albert Guy Bogard, uh, the Gun Range, Ralph Leon Yates. But it's the same. So he was being impersonated out in Mexico as well. So this is why I say about anti-Castro Cubans, a benign conspiracy. This is obviously very large scale. If you have people, and we can go back, you know, they, mm. they were impersonating Oswald Jagger Hoover. Well, we talked about it in a memo in 1960 uh, yeah. that we're we're concerned that someone's impersonating Oswald. What? So this is obviously that's what gives rise to people like John Armstrong and his Harvey and Lee theories that. Who knows how long this, how far this goes back? I mean, this guy was supposedly a nobody. Right. Why is paying space people? Why are people paying so much attention to him? So clearly, mm. something was. To me, that's the strongest evidence for conspiratorial activity. If if you have all this evidence, all these anecdotal accounts of someone trying to clearly frame him right. at a time, I think it tells you the nature of the conspiracy. Speaking, Don, tell me if you would, what is the uh, the the story? 
for the journey you lead readers through in Pipe the Bimbo in Red. Don't give away anything that would spoil it for anybody, but what are the, what's the, I'm assuming we follow the Dean Andrews of the 1960s. Um, yes. Describe, describe the experience of reading the book and the journey it takes us on and some of the things we learn and discover along the way. Well, I think it's it's another look at the, at the Garrison case. And again, both William and I are unapologetic uh, admirers of Jim Garrison. My friend John Barber likes to say, you know, John Barber, we have John Barber's contribution in this as well. John is the only person that interviewed Clay Shaw after the trial. I mean, interviewed uh, uh, Garrison after the Clay Shaw trial, and he he chose John to do that. And uh, so it's a very interesting thing he has to say there. And I think that if you, Garrison, we go over again how Garrison was, uh, his witnesses were dying, other witnesses were not understandably scared like Julianne Mercer that didn't want to testify. And then David Ferry was probably his key witness and dies the way he did, clearly, and, and very unnaturally, to say, the, to say the least. And he had other witnesses who were, we go into how, how unprecedented this was to have governors of other states, and among them, Ronald Reagan in California and John Connolly, of all people in Texas, refusing to extradite key witnesses like Gordon Novel and people like that that uh, would have helped Garrison's case. So when people say, oh, he didn't have anything, what he was left with was Clay Shaw. who was He was basically the survivor. He was the only one. And Perry Raymond Russo, who there's the, also in the book we have, uh, uh, Russo did not give that many interviews. And it's one of the few interviews he gave after JFK where, he, you know, he appeared as a cameo. Real Perry Raymond Russo, Oliver Stone was pretty cool the way he got him in there at the bar scene and he, he yells, Kennedy ought to be killed and that's what he really felt. He and Oliver Stone told him, "Tell us what you really feel." And he actually, but he ended up being obviously a witness for Garrison. But that's the kind of case Garrison was left with. So we talk about what Garrison was up against, and we juxtapose that against Dean Andrews' life, both Junior and my friend the third, as he saw it as a young man. He was coming; he was a teenager by the time this happened, and uh, he had, he was going to law school. Dropped out of law school. I don't think he would have. I think he would have become a lawyer like his father if it ended. And he ended up struggling at that. He's a cab driver for a while, and you know, I, I don't think I don't think he would mind. He tell him he's he's living in Section Eight housing now. Uh, you know, he's he's you know he's and he's he's handicapped. He's in a wheelchair, and bad uh, story. You know, when I talked to him because his he, his father, the the New Orleans lawyer, um, did Garrison get him to testify? No, he, he, had, he charged him with perjury as well, because he, it, what happened is Dean Andrews, he participated in the awful uh, documentary uh, on NBC uh, produced by Walter Sheridan, who was, worked for Robert F. Kennedy somehow early on and then became a reporter just to attack Jim Garrison, and he disappeared in the midst. And Joan Mellon did a great job for a book, A Farewell to Justice on Garrison, of, of talking about uh, Walter Sheridan. And Walter Sheridan was caught on tape by Garrison's office bribing Perry Raymond Russo, you know, and this, again, this is, and nothing happened to him. Garrison tried to do something. He couldn't get anybody to prosecute him. He wanted to prosecute uh, Clay Shaw for perjury. He wanted, he did prosecute uh, Dean Andrews for perjury, but Dean, Dean Jr. told so many different stories and he was all over the place. And what we show in this book is what he really felt behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, he was almost uh, insane with the paranoia. He was a dean's younger brother who just died um, last month since the book was written, unfortunately. But dean's younger brother would come home from school and uh, the door would be locked. He couldn't get inside the house because his dad was scared they were going to come and get him. 
And uh, Dean's brother suffered with drugs his entire life, and that's what killed him at a young age. So all this stuff, would any of it happen? Uh, you know, I, I think if, if 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 he had never taken that phone call, we certainly mm. wouldn't know who he was. I probably wouldn't. If my brother had become friends with this guy, he wouldn't have meant anything to me beyond right. that. But uh, so there's there's strange connections in life. So we we kind of go over and we we break new ground. And again, I said I I. But I want to, if I could, I want to describe what might be the linchpin of the story. Dean Andrews Jr. was a lawyer in New Orleans who had been uh, asked by Oswald to do some work about his status from his discharge from the military, right? Right. Right. And then on the day of, on the day, tell me if I have this right, on the day of the president's assassination, Yes. A man named Clay Bertram calls yes. attorney Dean Andrews and talks to him about representing this Lee Harvey Oswald who was just arrested in Dallas. Right. And then when Jim Garrison is investigating things in 66 into 67, he finds out about this or he knew about it and he talks to Dean Andrews, the attorney, and Dean Andrews backpedals on it and he wants nothing to do with it. And the reason Garrison was interested is he'd love to find out two things. Was this Clay Bertram who called on the phone really Clay Shaw? What was his interest in helping Lee Harvey Oswald? Because Garrison wanted to tie, and he was tying, this well-known New Orleans businessman and figure Clay Shaw to Lee Harvey Oswald. And that's what Dean Andrews wouldn't help and was afraid of presumably why because he was well aware of the number of prominent witnesses and reporters who were looking into the case 64 5 6 and 7 who were meeting these horrible and surprising deaths right absolutely and then dean was as he said as dean jr said in his colorful beatnik lingo i like to breathe you know they can crush me like a bug and and he was exactly right and he he understood He, he knew Again, he was a very prominent figure in New Orleans, so he knew of these people. And certainly having represented a lot of these anti-Castro Cubans for whatever reason, I don't know how big this thing went if they tried to ensnare Dean Andrews Jr. into it as well. I mean, who, who knows? But uh, hmm. And Dean, Dean III in his interview talks about as a, as a kid going and accompanying his dad to these camps, these these camps that they talked about where they were training the Cubans. So it's it's... There's a lot of stuff in this book that you've not seen before because Dean Dean the Third was there, and uh, his father played a much bigger role than people thought. And you know, although Garrison wow. was convinced by, uh, if you believe my friend John Barber, it was uh, Hale Boggs, but if you believe Oliver Stone, it was uh, Russell Long. But one of those guys convinced him, hey, you know, it was, this was a conspiracy. But one of the first things that caught his attention when he started looking at the Warren Commission testimony was the testimony of Dean Andrews Jr., who, of course, he knew. You know, Dean the Third told us that, hey, you know, he used to call our garrison, used to call a house, you know, I'd answer the phone and say, hello, young Dean. You know, he, he knew he went to the New Orleans Athletic Club with him, so he was a friend of the family. They knew each other. But garrison knew he was lying, and he probably understood why he was lying, but um, it's it's unfortunate because just imagine if he, if he could have gotten him to tell the truth. He, he was a People, I think researchers have ignored the central role, for whatever reason, Bertrand Shaw, who was the conduit between these New Orleans 
squatters who were really not conspirators, but they were being manipulated for whatever reason. Oswald was being set up as the patsy. He was the connection between them and the higher ups or somebody higher was told to do this. So he was a huge figure. And if they could have gotten fairy, if fairy had survived, you mm-hmm. know, and there's, and, and we go into all of this stuff and, the, and, and it, there's so many things in there that people will not have seen. A lot of it comes from the work of Harold Weisberg because mm-hmm. Weisberg not only wrote, not only wrote Oswald New Orleans, but his, uh, his archives at Hood University. The researchers haven't gone through those. We found things in the Mary Farrell database that I don't think people have talked about before. So it's, nice. Well, know, that, that I'm see. most in, I'm telling you, I'm most intrigued on because I believe you just described how Dean Andrews, the attorney in the 60s, was at the at these camps of the anti Castro Cubans training, which was a project under the uh, supervision or involvement of Clay Shaw, David Ferry, Oswald. So yeah. this is this is truly intense. And. Without spoiling it, or maybe I want you to spoil it if you if you if you do. How did Dean Andrews, the attorney, how how did his end his life end up? Well, he he died. He was relatively young. He was uh, 58, 59, but he was heavy, and so you know it's it's it, obviously it's certainly possible that someone that was overweight died of a heart attack or stroke. And, but um, so we don't. I don't think there's anything really suspicious necessarily about his death. But he was. What year? What year did he die? Uh, I want to say it was mid seventies or maybe nineteen eighty. Maybe nineteen eighty. But uh, oh, a little bit, a little bit after. Yeah. Yeah. So he, but he. The important thing there is, uh, in many ways, he mirrors. Uh, he was very much like uh, Seymour Weitzman, who was the Dallas deputy who was in the center of everything, and, and you know one of the ones who found the wrong gun on the sixth floor and signed an affidavit to it. But he ended up the House Select Committee of Assassinations found him in a mental institution. He'd been there for years, uh, driven, literally driven crazy by what he went through. And uh, Dean Andrews Jr. was kind of along that path. He was driven you know, off his rocker, understandably, because he, he was in a situation, he was in a no-win situation. If he told the truth, he knew he would be killed. He knew he might end up with a hatchet in his head like Eladio Novali, or he might, you know, end up like David Ferry with two typewritten suicide notes. You know, it he he didn't want to and he understood he knew all those people. So he knew what was happening to them. And uh so he was in a no-win situation, I think. And so I, I feel empathy for him. A lot of people don't, but I have empathy for people mm. in that situation because I don't know if I'd be principled enough to. Right. To not protect my, I mean, I, I think I would have to try to protect my family. So I, I understand why he did what he did. Yep. And being the third, being the third, and I have learned a lot from each other. Hmm. He he did he did not know a lot of the nuances of the assassination until he met me. What can I'm you fascinated. tell me? Yeah, what can you tell me, if you want, of uh, what's in Pipe the Bimbo in Red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the conspiracy to kill JFK, the brand new book by. You, Donald Jeffries, and William Madsen Law, what can you tell me that might further link or prove the involvement of Clay Shaw in the conspiracy? Well, we know, for instance, we, we knew this a long time before. People have known for a long time that uh, Richard Helms, and Victor Marchetti, the retired CIA officer, uh, came out in the 70s when he uh, wrote the, the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. 
And he talked about how during uh, the Garrison trial that Harrison, I mean, Helms, Richard Helms was briefing all of them and telling him, are, are, we, are we giving Shaw all the help he needs? Are we doing everything we can for him? And again, why would they be doing that if he wasn't connected to the CIA? We go into this book, we go into its deep ties to Permindex, which, uh, you know, you saw that movie, The Parallax View with Warren Beatty in the 1970s, uh, was based on Permindex. A lot of people have thought Permindex was an international assassination. And uh, it has ties. There's an ex-Nazi that was involved, that sat on the board at the same time as he did, an ex-president of Hungary. Uh, lots of, there's ties to the... Uh, Lucio Gelli and the uh, Masonic Order in Italy, where they found the Roberto Calvi, the banker hanging, hanging under the Blackfriars Bridge uh, back in the 80s. And May Brussel made a lot of that. But all these people did, were connected to Permanent. Yeah, did you, did you uh, read and did you incorporate at all any of that book, I think from last year, A Coup in Dallas by Hank Alborelli Jr., I think? About the no, Otto uh, uh angle and all? No, we didn't. Much of go, what you didn't. just alluded to, yeah. Yeah, no, and I know I know that uh, he did some work on that, and uh, he was a friend of mine on Facebook. Uh, we didn't we didn't go into that, no, not that aspect at all. Uh, um, well, then you found it on your own, because you know, I think you just alluded to things that are that are entwined. Yeah, in that, in that yes, angle, that story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the, it, the connections are there. So uh, you know, we may have arrived yeah. at it at them independently, but these, and that's why you just you look at. However, you look at it, Clay Shaw was a not not who he pretended to be, and uh, right. the and we know that he Bertrand was his alias. We know that he used it on a, a few occasions, and uh, we also we also go and thanks to the work of Paul Blow, who uh, writes for Kennedys and Kings, you know, Diogenes thing. He uh, he shared some research with us about the, he looked into the background of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which really nobody has done before. And he talked about you know the government was interested in this in this in this outfit, and so. There, there are those kinds of things that I don't think people, and, and one thing I, I think is, I, I will drop a little tidbit, maybe this good people to buy. I think it's one of the most important things in the book, and I found it in Weisberg's research. Weisberg went and he, we have a lot about Carrie Thornley in the book. Carrie Thornley, I'm I think. Sorry, I'm, sorry, Carrie, I'm sorry, what? We have a lot about Carrie Thornley in the book, who was Oswald's Marine mate and a very strange fellow. He, he gave the Warren Commission lots of information about Oswald that probably wasn't accurate. He looked a lot like Oswald. A lot of people think he may have been one of the Oswald lookalikes. But Harold Weisberg investigated the uh, the printer who printed out the Fair Play for Cuba pamphlets. And he got the guy and the only other worker there, independently of each other, both identified the person that picked up the pamphlets, Carrie Thornley. Huge. This, the Carrie, Thornley, yeah. Carrie Thornley was writing a book about Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination. I mean, what does that tell you? I'm so, and Kerry Thornley went on yeah. to be involved with a lot of strange people. He was um, a very, a very much an oddball character, but uh, we have a lot about him in there as well. So we, we cover a lot of people that, that people or uh, that uh, researchers probably have not looked at before that I find fascinating what their connections you, are and usually what happened to them. Real quick, did you say much or all? To your, I'm sure you did, to your satisfaction, not your final statement about JFK or the assassination, but was that, was that, is that how much of that is in the book, Don? You talking from the heart, I'm sure, you you know, framing the assassination and for, as far as its impact on American history and world history. And consider these kind of our final moments here. We're, we're bumping into the end of it, but sure. what was it like to pour what you probably did about uh, the Kennedy assassination into this book? 
Well, it's an emotional issue for me because it's very personal. Again, this is uh, this is uh, the Kennedy assassination had a deeper impact on me than any other event in my childhood outside of the things in the family. And uh, JFK remains.